All right, well, as we begin our journey through the Gospel of John, I'd encourage you to have your copy of God's Word open to John, and we'll, of course, begin with chapter 1 as we work our way through this book. We're going to uh, work through it in order, sort of chapter by chapter. Uh, You can breathe a sigh of relief. It will not be verse by verse, uh, but we will go chapter by chapter and uh, try to understand the structure theme of John. And uh, if we can, Lord willing, come away with what we think would have been John's outline for his own overview of the book if he were to do this. I'm sure I don't have it quite right, but uh, I did my best. And so we'll try to see what John has for us today. As you know, the uh, main portion of the book, chapters 1 through 20, end in verse 30 and 31, where John gives us this summary. Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So if we were to sort of summarize an outline of John, we could use that verse and just say, well, it begins by reading of these events in Jesus' life. Or the way John puts it, we're almost beholding, we're seeing what Jesus was like. And so these signs in chapters 1 through 20 are meant to reveal the glory of God so we can see Jesus the Savior. But that seeing Jesus the Savior isn't supposed to end with that. Oh, well, that's nice. He's the Savior. No, it's meant to lead to something. John's purpose in seeing Jesus is that the reader would believe that He is the Savior that God sent. And so we'll keep that thread as we work through John as well, to not only see, but to see and believe. But it doesn't end there. When we believe, we find life in His name. What's interesting about the Gospel of John is that as it unfolds, we realize that it's not merely eternal life that we find in Jesus' name. It's actually the very life of Jesus. We are united to Him. There are some rich theological concepts we'll get to in chapters 13 through 17 as Jesus describes what will happen through His death, resurrection, and ascension, that it's not just that they get eternal life with God, they're actually united to Christ. That's the life we receive in His name, Jesus' life. And so chapter 21 concludes with this call to then live as He lived, to follow Him through this life and into eternity. So there's kind of an overview of what we'll be thinking about today, to see Jesus the Savior, to believe and to live then as He lived. So we begin In the first few chapters, 1 through 20, I say few chapters, the majority of the book, by seeing Jesus, the Savior. Here's where we see Him. And John concludes this section by saying, These signs are written that you may believe. So we read in 1 through 20 of what Jesus is like. Jesus as Savior. And the first section of chapters 1 through 20 is chapters 1 through 12. And chapters 1 through 12 describe the words and works of Jesus. We see Him all over the place doing miracles, signs. We see Him at different festivals in the Jewish religion. We see Him performing miracles. And as He does these things, Jesus is, through His words and through His works, revealing His identity as Savior. And so this will be the first section that we cover together today, 1 through 12. 
seeing the words and works of Jesus and how they reveal His identity as Savior. Well, it all begins in chapter 1. Big surprise. And John opens the book uh, in a very fitting way, in the beginning. A great starting place. Our minds go back, of course, to Genesis. And chapter 1 sort of serves as this prologue, which introduces big concepts to us as we dive into the identity of Jesus Christ. And so chapter 1 serves as almost this summary, this overview of the book of what we're going to learn about Jesus, that he's the eternal word, he's always been, that he's the light of the world and in him is life, and that those who believe, like Jesus, become children of God. Rich concepts. Maybe the most significant comes in verse 14. Where John tells us this, the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, so there he's hinting at the reader what is to come. He became flesh and we beheld his glory. We saw him. We saw him do his miracles. We saw him live his life. We saw him speak his word. And you're about to read about the glory of the Son. God made flesh. What an introduction to the book of signs as we see the words and works of God in the flesh, the word, the very revelation of God himself among us. And so this is how John opens. And then with a formal introduction, John the Baptist points to Jesus and introduces him as the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see exactly what Jesus has come to do. And you notice in verse 39, in verse 46, there's a sort of an invitation to the reader as the disciples also see it. Notice verse 39. He said to them, come and see. Jesus invites not only two of the disciples of John the Baptist, but all of the readers, in a sense, are invited to come and see, read about this Savior and what He's like. It's repeated again in verse 46, as Philip repeats the invitation. Philip says to Nathanael, come and see, come and see. And so again, we're invited in to look and to behold this Savior, come and see. In verses 50 and 51, Jesus closes chapter 1 by saying this, Because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus says, just watch. You're going to see greater things than these. You'll see heaven open. You'll see the power of God displayed in my life as the Son of God, God in the flesh. Behold the glory of the Son. And so chapters 2 through 12 begin the words and works of Christ as he invites us to come and see his glory. Maybe that's the very invitation you need today, to come and see Jesus. Chapter 2 opens a section of the gospel that is actually incredibly intentional. Now, this is going to look complicated. Don't be alarmed. Hang with me here. In the Gospel of John, John follows four different themes as he tracks Jesus' life. We see Jesus kind of supersede a number of institutions in the Jewish religion. 
Okay, so you'll, you'll understand those as we unfold those. For instance, there's a wedding mentioned and purification jars and a well and different kind of holy institutions within Judaism that Jesus appears at and shows that he's better than all these things. There are signs. You're familiar with the signs of John, and you may realize there are seven signs in John, and we'll watch as those unfold. A variety of festivals that Jesus goes to, right? There's the uh, Passover day is one, or excuse me, Sabbath day is one of those. Passover is another one. Tabernacles, Hanukkah. We've mentioned these. We've gone through John. So John tracks along with festivals in the gospel. And then finally, the I am statements. And you're familiar with these as well. All through the gospel of John, Jesus says, I am, and then follows with something else. And so we're going to track with these as we work through the next few chapters. Buckle your seatbelts. I'm going to keep moving here. And uh, and so you don't have to get all these down. uh, And if you can't, I'm happy to give you these lists after uh, our service today. So with your Bible open, take a look at John chapter 2. This is the first sign of John where Jesus turns the water to wine at a wedding. Right? And in that, we see that Jesus is the great provider. He meets our needs. But this also signifies two institutions. The purification pots are pointed out. Those are the jars of water that Jesus turns from water into wine. And what that signifies is that Jesus is the true purification. There's no need for these water pots any longer. He's come to provide purification. But also, there's this celebration. And the actual host of the wedding fails. He runs out of wine, and Jesus shows that He is the greater wedding host. He is the one who provides everything that is needed for celebration. And this, of course, looks forward to the kingdom, when Jesus will provide in abundance for the great celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb. So Jesus is better than the Jewish institutions. We go from a wedding to the temple where Jesus cleanses the temple. This house of prayer had become this marketplace and Jesus cleanses it. And he makes an amazing statement in chapter 2, verse 19. He answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And John points out to us that he's actually referring to his body. And so we find that Jesus is indeed the true temple. He says, this temple you will destroy and I will raise it up. Jesus is the presence of God among his people. No longer should they look to a structure. Now they look to Jesus. As we conclude chapter 2 and come to chapter 3, there's a conversation with one of the Pharisees, a man named Nicodemus. And here Jesus has an extended teaching on salvation, what it means to be born again. It's interesting as we study this text and begin to understand salvation from the words of Jesus. Of course, uh, importantly, one of the most familiar verses of Scripture, John 3.16, comes to us in this text. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This 
is why the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And those who believe in Him are born again. And Nicodemus is having trouble understanding these concepts as Jesus talks with him. And it's interesting here as another institution. Jesus calls Nicodemus a rabbi. Are you the true teacher of Israel? And what Jesus is doing is saying, no, I'm the true teacher of Israel as Jesus shows himself to be the true rabbi, the true teacher, instructing us about salvation. Friend, I don't know if this is your need today as you come and see Jesus, but to see Him as the Savior. Would today be the day that you finally lay down your own efforts to save yourself or to build your own life and to finally be born again by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is our salvation? Oh, turn to Him today. and Believe in the One who came to save you from your sins. That's our Jesus. So he teaches Nicodemus and offers everlasting life to the teacher of Israel, the true rabbi inviting him to be saved. From there we move in chapter 4 and uh, Jesus encounters the woman at the well. And though Jesus asks for a drink, he ends up satisfying her thirst forevermore. And here's institution number 5. This well had become a sacred place in Israel. A place where they came to worship and Jesus says, no, you don't need this well anymore. I'm the source of living water as he offers to the woman water that never runs out and springs up into life everlasting. Jesus is the true source of living water. He alone satisfies the thirst of the human soul. Friend, do you thirst today? Is your soul longing for something more? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Later in chapter 4, Jesus heals the nobleman's son, This man is royalty, and he's used to giving commands and things happening at his word. And significantly, Jesus heals the son only by his word. He doesn't go to the nobleman's home. And when the man arrives at home, he realizes that at a very time Jesus spoke his word, his son was healed. And we see that Jesus is the one with true royal authority. That when he speaks, it is done. And the nobleman's son is healed. We learn that Jesus has all authority. This is sign number two in the Gospel of John, the healing of the nobleman's son. And there we learn that Jesus' word has all authority. When he speaks, it is done. And so here he heals the nobleman's son, sign number two. Chapter 5 leads us to sign number 3, and we meet the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. He's paralyzed, and Jesus speaks with him and tells him three times to rise up and take his bed and walk. And so sign number 3 is the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, and what we learn there is that Jesus can make us well. His words are healing words. And indeed, there is a day coming when Jesus will banish every disease, when he will wipe away every tear, when because he conquered death, there will be no more death. This is our Savior. He makes all well. As chapter 5 continues, Jesus continues to unfold his identity. So uh, are you tracking with me? How are you doing? Doing all right? Okay. Keep that seatbelt buckled. All right, we're in chapter 5. And after healing the man of the pool of Bethesda, do you remember the Pharisees got all upset? Not that a paralyzed man was healed, but that Jesus did it on the Sabbath. 
And so here we encounter our first holy day, our first festival of the Gospel of John, the Sabbath. And as they attack Jesus for doing the Father's work on the Sabbath, Jesus says, no, it's okay because I am one with the Father. When the Father works, I work. You notice that in John 5, 17. My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. Even on the Sabbath, God is doing things. God need not rest on the Sabbath He created. He's doing good. He's holding the world together. And Jesus is saying, just like the Father, I'm doing good on the Sabbath. He equates himself to God here. He goes on and down in verse 23, actually says that the Son deserves the same honor as the Father. They're one. They're equal. And so Jesus is pointing out that he fulfills the Sabbath. He is God in the flesh. The Sabbath doesn't rule over him. He rules over the Sabbath. He's Lord of the Sabbath and works as the Father works. What further testimony do we need? He said it from his own mouth. He's equal to the Father. And in fact, at the close of chapter 5, verses 31 through 47, Jesus encourages the Pharisees to believe. He says, you have so many signs You have John the Baptist who taught you. You have the Father who has testified that I'm His Son. You have the works of the Father that you've been seeing me do. And you have the written Word of God. Moses wrote about me, Jesus says. Will you not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? He made it so clear. And this is what all of this reveals. Friend, what further testimony do you need to trust in Jesus today? He's the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and He came so that you might have life in His name. Chapter 6 brings us to another familiar sign, sign number 4, the feeding of the 5,000. And there as Jesus teaches, of course this is 5,000 plus, right? There as Jesus teaches, uh, the, the crowds are around him and he realizes that they are hungry, they're in need of sustenance, they need someone to provide for them. And this sets the tone for what Jesus is about to do as he distributes bread and fish to the crowds, as he provides for all our needs. Jesus meets all our needs. But not only does this show that Jesus is able to meet all of our needs, this also fulfills his role as the true prophet of Israel. Because shortly after this, this is around Passover time, and shortly after this, the Jews are are looking to Jesus and say, oh, give us manna from heaven. They want Him to show Himself to be like Moses. Moses gave them manna from heaven. You give us manna from heaven. And Jesus says, no, it wasn't Moses that gave you manna. It was God. And now I'm here as the bread of life. So while they're looking for Moses to return, Jesus shows them he is the true prophet. Another institution of Israel that Jesus says, no, it's me. Look to me. I'm the true prophet. I'm the one you need. And the feeding of the 5,000 reminds us of that. Now, just following the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus and his disciples go off onto the sea. And one of the great occasions in which the sea is stormy and Jesus comes to them and calms the storm. This is also in verse 20 of chapter 6, our first occurrence of Jesus saying, I am. He comes to them on the water and they're afraid and he calms the storm and he says, it is I, or literally, I am. Do not be afraid. 
This is sort of the introduction to the I am's of John. And it's between this one and the one in chapter 18 when he causes the guards to all fall down that we find the other uh, I am statements of the Gospel of John. And so the first formal I am statement comes here in chapter 6 when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Again, they're looking for manna from Moses. They're looking for sustenance from God. And Jesus says, I am here as the bread of life. Feed on me and you will have life everlasting. Jesus is inviting them to be saved. This is also where he will fulfill Passover. This is the second festival we come to in the Gospel of John. He is the Passover bread. He is the one who gives life. He is the one who redeems his people. Notice chapter 6, verses 37 through, excuse me, 35 through 37. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Jesus is the life, and those who come find life forevermore and will never be cast out. Oh, friend, come to Jesus today. In Him alone is life everlasting, and He will never cast you out. As Jesus continues to unfold His identity, we come then to chapter 7. There are disciples who turn away in chapter 6 and towards the end of chapter 6. They reject Him. They do not follow Him any longer. But then in chapter 7, even His brothers disbelieve Him. And so Jesus reveals more about His identity. The Feast of Tabernacles is now the scene. And Jesus heads down to Jerusalem for the feast privately, not publicly. And so the celebrations of the Feast of Tabernacles are sort of going on. And if you remember this feast, it's important. This is the feast where they remembered Israel's time in the wilderness. And they build these tents where they'd actually see through the roof of the tent to the stars in the sky to remember what it was like to be sojourners in the wilderness. And there were a couple specific celebrations they did. Maybe you remember when we worked on them together. There was one where I poured water into a bucket over here. You remember that? That was to signify one of the ways they celebrated Feast of Tabernacles. It was to remember the provision of water from the rock. Do you remember that? It's one of their celebrations at the feast. Another one of their celebrations was to light candelabras in the temple that would sort of shine and beam up from the temple to remind the people of the pillar of fire as they wandered in the wilderness. And so it's significant at the Feast of Tabernacles that Jesus makes two crucial proclamations. You notice one of them there in chapter 7, verses 37 through 38. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So they don't need to look back to the rock in the wilderness. They need to look to Christ, who is now God's source of living water. And so at this festival, Jesus shows that he is the living water. He's better than the Feast of Tabernacles. He's the fulfillment of what it was meant to look forward to. He's the living water. But not only that. 
Jesus also mentions in chapter 8 at this same feast that he is the light of the world. And so as they were looking to the temple and all these candelabras reminding them of the pillar of fire in the wilderness, Jesus says to them in 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. As they thought back to the pillar of fire that guided them and protected them, now they have Jesus who is their guide and protector. He fulfills the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus is the light of the world. So with these statements, we of course have another I am statement. As Jesus says, I am the light of the world. This is our second I am statement, and it's repeated again in the next chapter. But before we get there, we have sort of a midpoint in the I am statements. And in chapter 8, verse 58, as he discusses with the Pharisees, he makes one of the most significant statements in the Gospel of John. They are talking with Jesus, and he references Abraham, and they say, you're not old enough to know Abraham. And Jesus responds in verse 58, most assuredly, I say to you before, Abraham was, I am. One of the clearest statements in Scripture of Jesus claiming to be God. Jesus says to them, I have always been. Oh, I know Abraham. I was and always have been before Abraham existed. He's the I am. And so as the light who guides and protects, now in chapter 9, he's the light who reveals our blindness. In chapter 9, he encounters the man who was born blind, that God might be glorified. And he comes to the man and he gives him sight. And now Jesus is mentioned in verse 5 as the light of the world, not just as guide and protector, but now as one who gives sight. And so this is sign number five. He heals our spiritual blindness. As the light of the world, he helps us to see what we did not even know about ourselves, that we were lost in darkness and in our sin. Only Jesus opens our eyes to that. Friend, let the light of Jesus shine into your life today. Let him open your eyes to the reality of your sin and the cleansing salvation that he offers to you today. Let him heal your blindness. He is the Savior. As we come to chapter 10, you guys are doing great. You guys are doing great. 10, 11, 12. We're almost to our first break, okay? And understand, verses, or chapters 1 through 12 is our longest portion of the gospel. So uh, it's all downhill from here. You're doing really well. As we come to chapter 10, Jesus reveals his identity as the good shepherd. We have two I am statements in uh, chapter 10. The first is in verse 7 where Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. Here he signifies that he's the only way to salvation. Verse 8, all who came before were thieves and robbers and the sheep did not hear him. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. It's only through Jesus that we find salvation and entrance into the fold of God. Jesus is the door. But not only that, Jesus is the shepherd. This is I am statement number four. And in verses 11 and 14, Jesus emphasizes his identity as the shepherd. Look at verse 11 specifically. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. He's good because he lays down his life to save the sheep. Now he's beginning to reveal what's coming. 
that Jesus will show who he is by laying down his life. We begin to understand the kind of love that he came to show us. As the good shepherd, he saves his people. Verse 22 of chapter 10 points out our fourth feast, the feast of dedication. This is actually not one prescribed in the Old Testament. This is one that came up in the history of Israel when they were under oppression, and uh, it's called the Maccabean Revolution. Judas Maccabeus and his brother uh, liberated them from oppression, and so they instigated this feast of dedication. We know it today as Hanukkah. They still celebrate the Feast of Lights. And it was to remember their liberator, their hero. And so it's at the Feast of Dedication that Jesus appears and He shows that He Himself is the real hero. He's the hero God. So that's festival number four. Jesus appears at the Feast of Dedication and tells them, I am the hero. I am the hero. I'm the one you need to trust. I'm the Savior. They respond, of course, by trying to stone Him. It's as they begin to kill him that Jesus, or begin to try to kill him, excuse me, that Jesus begins to show his power over death itself. And so as you're familiar, we come to chapter 11, where Jesus raises Lazarus. This is then the sixth sign of the book of John, as Jesus raises Lazarus to life. And he goes to Lazarus' tomb and calls forth the dead man. And Lazarus comes out and they unwrap him and there he is alive again. And this is also where we find our fifth I am statement. In chapter 11, verse 25, you can turn there. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And his invitation to Martha to believe falls to us today, will you place your faith in Jesus, the resurrection and the life? Though you may die, if you believe in the one who conquered death, the resurrection and the life, you will yet live. We follow his path, death, resurrection, ascension. We walk with Jesus. We follow him because he conquered death. We know that we will too. Jesus raises Lazarus to life, and this simply escalates the opposition between him and the chief priests. And so it becomes significant. We have a repeat festival. It's Passover again in the end of John chapter 11. Verse 45 through 57, we actually don't have any words from Jesus in this text. We actually just get a sneak peek into the conversation of the chief priests. And as Passover approaches, this section drips with irony as the chief priests are doing two things at the same time. They are seeking out Passover lambs to sacrifice at Passover, and they're also seeking out Jesus that he might die in place of the nation. That's exactly the function of the Passover lamb. That by his death, God would pass over the sins of his people. And so the priests seek to kill Jesus, and it's revealed to us at this festival that Jesus is the true Passover lamb. God sent him so that they would not seek out little lambs any longer, but that there's one lamb that would die and provide cleansing of sin. Jesus is the Passover lamb. As they seek to kill him, 
his followers begin to grasp a little bit of what's going on here. They believe now that he's the Messiah. And so in chapter 12, Mary comes to him and worships him as the king. Here we have another institution, the seventh. Jesus is the true king. Remember, she bows at his feet and she pours out the most expensive possession that she had. She just pours it out at his feet and worships him, kissing his feet as a subject before a king. And following that, Jesus marches into Jerusalem on a donkey as they worship him as the Messiah King. He reveals his identity. He's the true king of Israel. And he enters Israel as king. And within mere days, Jesus would die. Yes, as the true king of Israel, giving his life for his subjects. As the true shepherd of Israel, laying down his life for his sheep. And so chapter 12 begins to tell us now that his hour of glory has come. As he's worshipped as king, we are also to worship him as king. But as he's lifted up, it will not be first exalted to a throne. He will be lifted up on a cross, where as 12.32 tells us, he will draw all peoples to himself. Even Gentiles will seek him and find salvation in the one who was lifted up on the cross. And so Jesus begins to make clear that as he, the seed, is killed and buried in the ground, he will bear much fruit, not only for those who trust in him as a part of Israel, but for the whole world. Those from all nations who will look to the cross and trust in Jesus Christ will bear fruit. That's the kind of Savior He came to be, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. So friend, you here today are invited to look to the one on the cross, the Son of Man lifted up to die for your sins, and to believe and to find life. This concludes chapters 1 through 12. Chapter 13, we enter into a very intimate scene between Jesus and His disciples, and that would be our next section of review. Just a few words of application and then a song to help us remember chapters 1 through 12. Let me just summarize very rapidly what we've learned in 1 through 12. The theme is simply this. See that Jesus is the Savior. He's the Creator, the revelation of God. You want to know what God is like? Look to Jesus. He's the complete provider. Do you have a need today? Look to Jesus. He's the only source of purification. Do you need cleansing from your sin? Look to Jesus. He's the presence of God. Do you feel distant from God today? Look to Jesus. He's the true teacher. Are you confused, unsure of the truth in this world? Look to Jesus. He's the source of living water. Do you find your soul dry and thirsty? Oh friend, look to Jesus. He's the one with all authority. Are you tired of empty promises and unfulfilled word? Look to Jesus, whose word is always sure. He can heal every disease. Does your body groan in this fallen world? Look to Jesus, who will banish every disease. He's our Sabbath rest. Are you tired of working for your righteousness? Look to Jesus, who offers you His. He is equal to God, equal to the Father. Distracted by the false gods of this world? Look to Jesus. Jesus. He meets every need. Are you discontent or worried about what you have or don't have? Look to Jesus. He's the prophet. Every word of his is true. Do you need direction? 
Look to Jesus. He's the source of sustenance in life. Do you find yourself tired, weary, weighed down? Is your soul hungry? Look to Jesus, the bread of life. He's the Redeemer. Are you feeling enslaved today? Look to Jesus. He is the light in the darkness. Are you lost in need of guidance or protection? Look to Jesus. He's our, he heals our spiritual blindness. Maybe you aren't even sure of what's wrong in your life today. You sense something is off but can't figure it out. Look to Jesus. He's the door to salvation. Do you feel shut out, unable to find assurance of salvation? Look to Jesus today. He's the good shepherd. Are you in need of care, guidance, and protection or leadership? Look to Jesus today. He's laid down his life for you. He's the hero God. Do you wish someone would swoop in and save you? Look to Jesus. He's the resurrection and the life. Are you haunted by death, grieving the death of a loved one, or even afraid of your own death? Look to Jesus. He's the true king. Are you ready for a leader who will actually do good and put down evil and reign with justice? Look to Jesus. The words and works of Jesus make it clear. He's the Savior. All right, buckle those seatbelts back up. Here we go into chapter 13 through 17 of the Gospel of John. And it's not that Jesus' words and works stop here. It's that he focuses in on his disciples. He focuses in on what it is that they need to hear. And verse 1 of chapter 13 points this out for us. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so Jesus is kind of zooming in on his disciples. He's going to help them understand what they need to understand as he prepares to depart. So chapters 13 through 17 help us with this. His hour of glory completes his work as Savior. He's telling them about his departure, death, resurrection, and ascension. And he's preparing his disciples for what is going to come. He imparts to them His Word, and He's telling them that they too will also receive His Spirit so they can share in His work and glory. It begins with His foot washing and betrayal in John chapter 13. Here is this example of something to come. He's serving them, and He's preparing them for His greatest act of service, dying on the cross for their sins. And so He washes their feet, even Judas's feet, just before Judas leaves the room to betray him. After Judas leaves, this farewell discourse begins as Jesus gives them a new command. He imparts imparts to them his task. He says, love one another as I have loved you. You've watched my example, now you do the same thing. As Peter pipes up that he, of course, will be able to do this well, Yes, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus says, no, Peter, you're going to fail. In fact, you'll deny me three times. But lest they be troubled, chapter 14 opens with the encouragement that though they fail, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so here we have our sixth I am statement back to this chart, which we have not quite finished yet. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, our sixth I am statement. Friend, maybe you feel like you failed or you lost the way. Be encouraged. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Keep looking to Him. Trust in Him alone. 
Jesus explains that they will receive his word, they will receive his spirit, and through those things they will have everything they need to thrive in their purpose as they live as he lived. And so chapter 15 gives us another I am statement, I am the true vine, as Jesus explains that they will thrive on his sustenance as they embrace his word and as they live out his love, they'll do exactly what he's called them to do. He's provided for everything. After his departure, they will depend on his word and his spirit to bear fruit for God's glory. But not only will they bear fruit, they are learning that they're actually being united to the very life of Jesus. And so just like they'll bear fruit like he did, they'll also be hated by the world like he was. And so the end of chapter 15 and the beginning of chapter 16 talk about the fact that they will face this hatred. And yet, Jesus tells them, because you're united to me, you have my peace. Because you're united to me, you have my word, you have my joy. They can get through the hatred of the world because they are one with Him. And so chapter 16 concludes on this high note, so to speak, in verse 33. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Because Jesus died and rose again, conquered sin and death, and we are united to Him. Even though we face tribulation in this life, we can be of good cheer because the one who rose again is our victor. And so, in these verses, we see all the things that Christ has imparted to us. And he concludes it all in chapter 17 with this prayer. We we get the chance to enter into this intimate moment between Jesus and His Father. And the disciples are there as well. Jesus is praying in their presence. And He begins by talking in verses 1-5, through just about Him and the Father. And we see there that Jesus has shown His glory in the world, the glory that glorifies the Father. But as He moves to His followers, it becomes clear that they too are going to share in this glory. That they'll show the same glory that Jesus showed. They will have the opportunity to show in the world. In fact, Jesus says, Father, don't remove them from the world, but give them everything they need to show the world that Jesus is the Savior that God sent. Not only are the followers, the disciples, sent with this task in verse 18, but then in verse 20, Jesus prays for everyone who will believe in Him. Friend, if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, then He prays for you here. He prays that you would have all that you need to fulfill your mission, your task. You see, when we're united to Christ, we're not just united to His eternal life. We're united to His very person. And so we live on the earth as He lived, showing the world that Jesus is the Savior. That's our task. That's our mission, united to Christ. We have all that we need. So as we think about chapters 13 and 17, we understand that Jesus has prepared His followers for His departure. What will life be like after His death, resurrection, and ascension when we are united to Him by His Spirit? He makes clear that He's given them everything they need to live as He lived. Not only to save them, but to give them His very life. 
And so, friend, if you've trusted in Christ as Savior, this is the life in His name that you've received. You're united to Christ, and by His Word and by His Spirit, you have all that you need to live for Him. That's the theme of 17, or 13 through 17. And so what we see here is to lean on Jesus, to lean on what He's done for us. You see, He's imparted us His love Keep leaning on Jesus. He's imparted us His mission. Lean on Jesus. He's imparted His Spirit. You have help. Lean on Jesus. He's imparted His peace as you face tribulation. Lean on Jesus. He's imparted His words as you face life. Lean on Jesus. He's imparted His resurrection life. Lean on Jesus. You see, His departure completes His work as Savior. And through it, He gives us everything we need to live for Him. We'll worship Him for this in a song called, I Am His and He Is Mine. It represents well how we are united to Christ. Next, we consider chapters 18 and 19. And here we're going to see that His death displays His glory as Savior. From the cross, He radiates the very perfections of God as He shows the world what He's really like. And as He said in chapter 12, as the Son of Man is lifted up, that glory will draw all peoples to Himself. In chapter 18, we find the final I am statement, and we'll come to that in just a little bit, where as the guards seek to arrest him, Jesus steps forward, says, who are you seeking, Jesus of Nazareth? And he responds, I am. And they fall to the ground, showing that he indeed is in control, that as he goes to the cross, this is not some thwarting of God's plan, but instead, Jesus laying down his life for his sheep. He's truly in control, as we see in chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. In 12 through 27, we have highlighted for us the actual failures of Peter, which reminds us that this is the reason the Lamb is going to the cross. Even Peter's failures will fall upon the Lamb as he dies for Peter's sins, but not just for Peter's, yours and mine as well. In verses 28 through 40 of chapter 18, we see the king submit to injustice as Pilate shows that he's completely unworthy as a leader and has to even ask Jesus what is truth. We see that Jesus is indeed the true king and he submits to this injustice so that he can save his followers. Then in chapter 19, verses 1 through 16, we see that he's the worthy king. And the irony just continues to drip as Pilate says that his title should read, Jesus, King of the Jews. There, as he hangs on the cross, it's announced to the world, to all people who pass by, that Jesus is indeed the true king, dying for our sins. He's the worthy king. In 17 through 27, we see that he reveals the glory of God. He is life surrounded by death. He is the true king lifted up, drawing all peoples to himself. He's the savior who lays down his life and fulfills the father's plan. He's the son of God who loves his own to the end, even caring for Mary and John as he hangs from the cross. 
Jesus finishes his work. And in John 19, 28 through 40, uh, 42, we have one of the most significant scenes in the Gospel of John as Jesus from the cross in verse 30 cries out, It is finished and gives up his spirit. The work of the Passover lamb is done. The price of sin is paid in full. The cup of the Father's wrath is, uh, he drank every last drop. And so by his death, he finished the Father's work. By his blood, he cleanses our sin. And by his burial, he produces much fruit. In the cross, all the glory we saw in chapters 1 through 12, and that he described in 13 through 17, is put on display Here he puts his words to action. He doesn't just say he'll lay down his life. He actually does it. He dies in your place. He dies in my place. See, it's more than just an example. It's atonement. All the things that Jesus said he would do, uniting us to him, giving us his spirit, could not be done unless our sins had been paid for. We can't share in Christ's life unless we're made clean, unless our sins are washed away, unless there's some righteousness that we can be given, the very righteousness of God. And so as Jesus dies on the cross, we watch the single greatest act of love in all of history. As Jesus loved not only the followers who watched him on that tree, but everyone who reads this gospel and hears it even today has been loved by Jesus, the Savior that God sent. He died for your sins. The Almighty, the I Am, as He declares in John 18, died for you. Will you trust in Jesus today? I want to sing again a song called Hark, the Voice of Love and Mercy, and it reminds us of the beauty of those words. It is finished. Well, though Jesus said it is finished, I'm not quite finished. So we have a little bit more to do. Uh, We have John chapters 20 and 21 left, okay? We're going to cover those together, and we have one more song to sing. You're doing great. We're almost there. In John chapter 20, we see that His resurrection proves His Word as Savior. The Apostle Paul breaks this down for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What good is it as a Savior claims all these things but remains dead in the grave? Not Jesus. He rose from the grave. And as he makes clear both to Mary and to his disciples and then to Thomas, his resurrection, his life proves his word. He is indeed the resurrection and the life. And so everything he's been teaching and saying and that we've been reading and hearing is proved true because Jesus is alive. And we get to discover with Peter and John who visit the tomb and peer in and see the grave clothes and realize uh, his Head coverings are folded to the side. This isn't a stolen body. This is Jesus alive again. And then as Mary encounters Jesus at the tomb and doesn't know it, it's the gardener, right? And she turns and looks to him and all Jesus has to say is, Mary. She turns and sees him. Oh, my teacher, you're alive. Jesus is alive. This, friends, is the final sign of the Gospel of John. The seventh sign, there it is, our chart is now full. 
His resurrection from the dead is the final sign of the gospel. And that's why it's at the end of chapter 20 that John finally says, These signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life because He's the resurrection and the life. And the final sign proves that everything we've seen about Jesus... All his festival appearances and his superseding the institutions of Israel and the signs and his I am statements, it's all true because he rose again from the grave. This is in many ways the culmination of the book as Jesus shows his power over death. He reveals the truth of his word. He turns our weeping into joy. He is the risen Lord. And so, friends, we see Believe the truth about Jesus and live. And this is where it all culminates for John. Having seen these things, and this word see is so crucial, even in chapter 20, as each of the disciples has the chance to see him. Even Thomas, who doubted and wanted proof, is given the opportunity both to see and to feel the very side of his Savior who was pierced so that Thomas might have life. Friends, see, or as we've done today, read, listen, and believe. Jesus is the Savior that God sent. This conclusion of the signs in 1 through 20 reminds us to trust in the Lord. What's keeping you from trusting Him today? For the first time or for the millionth time, would you trust Him? He's the Savior. That leads us then to chapter 20. And in chapter 20, excuse me, chapter 21, we just did chapter 20. It's been a long book, okay? (laughs) In chapter 21, we see what it means to have that life in His name. Chapter 21 is after the signs. And it's this opportunity for John to show what it means now to live Jesus' life. These disciples, these followers of Jesus, now after his death and resurrection, have been united to Christ and they're ready to live Jesus' life. They're ready to follow him. And chapter 21 helps us to understand what that means. It's the commissioning of the disciples. It's their their sending out again as Jesus calls them to the task that he called them to in the very beginning of the gospel to be fishers of men. And so we see in chapter 21 that with the risen Lord, we have all we need to thrive in his purpose for us. Without him, of course, we can do nothing, but he comes to us. Remember, he meets the disciples there on the shore and calls to them, fish on the other side, and they get this massive catch of 153 uh, fish, as John remembers it, and they drag the fish to shore, and there's Jesus. He didn't need their fish. He's already there with breakfast prepared for them, but he involves them, and this is the key. He involves them in his mission. He says, bring the fish you have caught. See, they're participating in what Jesus is doing. How gracious of our Lord to include them. (laughs) They did so much work catching those fish, right? But he draws them in. He talks to them around breakfast. Peter, who's feeling distant, having failed the Lord, Jesus draws him near and recommissions Jesus, teaches him to love and to follow Jesus. He has a task, feed my sheep, three times he says to Peter, knowing that Peter loves him wants to follow, wants to live for him, Jesus calls him to serve, to feed, 
to do the same thing Jesus had been doing, even to lay down his life for his sheep. You see, this is the life in his name. United to Christ, we live as he lived. We see who he is. We believe in Jesus as Savior. And then we live as he lived through this life and forever. That's what it means to believe in Jesus as Savior. Not just eternal life, but Jesus' very life itself. So friend, Jesus draws you into his mission today. If you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, then you, friend, have been given His Word and His Spirit, as we learned in chapters 13 through 17, so that you can participate in the mission of God. You are here on this earth for a reason, to love as He loved, to see what He has done, and to, like Philip at the very beginning of the gospel, tell your friends, come and see, you've got to hear about this Jesus. Not only to evangelize, but to disciple, to feed His sheep, to care for His flock, to, again, love one another as He has loved us, even laying down our lives if necessary. Well, Why would we lay down our lives? Because we follow the one who laid down his life and by his death conquered sin and death and rose from the grave. And so even if he calls us to follow through death, we know we will live forevermore because he's the resurrection and the life and he's alive forevermore. And so we follow him through everything. For Peter, he was going to lay down his life for Jesus. And though he was worried about what might happen to John, Jesus says, Peter, focus. You follow me. Friends, that's the call for us today as we conclude. Jesus showed who he was as Savior so that you would believe in him. And having believed, you would find life in his name. Not only eternal life, but his very life itself so that you can live as He lived, love as He loved, and follow Him through this life and into eternity. Will you follow Him today? Are you looking for direction? Are you looking for a next step? Look to Jesus. One of the main reasons we went through this gospel as a church, aside from the fact that it's the Word of God and is really good, was so that we would be equipped to walk through the Gospel of John with someone else. We'll talk more about that in our family service today. But this is part of the goal of studying God's Word together. Not just that it would impact my heart and life, yes, but that also I would be able to love someone else with the truth of this book. To walk with them, whether it's through the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Mark or another passage, we've been through it together. You understand You know, you've seen the Savior. And if you've believed, He's called you into His mission as well to make disciples. We want to conclude our time together by singing a song, the best song I could find to encompass the Gospel of John. This is how we'll end today. We come, O Christ, to you. I'm going to pray before we sing, and then when the song ends, we will be dismissed, and we'll start our family service at 1130 Uh, So again, after the song, we'll be dismissed. Uh, Let's pray together and then we'll sing. 
Father, we thank you for the Gospel of John. Oh, what a precious book that has reminded us of the worth and value and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We marvel at who he is and what he's done. Fill our hearts with love for him that as we live his life, people would see us and turn to you. And even as we sing that together today, Lord, help us to live for you, that people would see his life in us and turn to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.